This podcast is sponsored by Uncana, trusted natural solutions. Uncana is a leading voice of advocacy for CBD in the veteran LEO and federal communities. Veteran-owned and operated, the Uncana team is actively fighting for DOD access to CBD with political pressure, community support, and a simple message. Hashtag OpNatural. Uncana is vertically integrated with industry leaders from seed to sell, supplying premium small batch products to America's best. Use code MENTORS4MIL the number four, M-I-L, at checkout at uncana.com to receive your amazing discount. Read the Mentors for Military disclaimer at mentorsformilitary.com slash disclaimer. First off, man, welcome to the Mentorship Military Podcast, and it's an honor to have you on. I can't wait to dive into your background and especially the topic, you know, of the day, which uh, we just wrapped up a podcast last night on traumatic brain injury. So this is a great segue into this conversation as well. So anyway, welcome, Rick. Appreciate you. Yeah. Man. Appreciate you coming on. Do you go by Ricky or Rick? Either one's fine. Okay. I'm good with that one. Um, so... Where, first off, where was it you started out before you went in the army? Where, where, what's home? Uh, home is uh, South Florida. Okay, so, where about? Yeah. I grew up in Fort Lauderdale, Florida, and then moved around a lot, and then ended up uh, in the Orlando area. Okay, um, but you stayed in South Florida when you say moved around. You stayed all in South Florida then. Uh, some parts of South Florida, and then a lot of Central Florida. Yeah. So, what made you all of a sudden want to go into the army then? Because you know that you would think that. Um, down in that area, I guess it's a number of different things. There's a little bit of Army. There's a little bit of, um, I think we have Air Force Base down there, and then Navy in Jacksonville. So what what made you want to go in the Army? Well, so I, I had a pretty rocky home life living in, uh, you know, from elementary all the way through high school. And I was fortunate enough in high school to do Navy Junior Reserve Officer Training. Yeah. to a little NJROTC. Oh, yeah. Um, so I was, really enjoyed it. Um, liked all the little drill teams, liked the leadership, liked the idea of the military. And I was really interested when I was in high school, I wanted to go to Texas A&M and go into like criminal justice. Right. Um, and that's uh, a leap from Florida to Texas. I mean, <laughs> yeah, you crossed the I, whole Gulf there, you know? I, I, yeah. And, I, and it was like army ROTC at FSU or army ROTC at Texas A&M for some reason just seemed right. Um, and as I was leading up to getting ready to graduate, uh, the home life kind of deteriorated more and more and enlisting seemed like the best option to get me out of a bad situation. Yeah. Uh, so I common theme. Yeah. Very common theme. Right. So being a guy who does research a lot and likes is a little obsessive about decision-making, um, was able to talk to a recruiter, did a lot of research and learned about, um, airborne contracts I took an anatomy and physiology class in high school and kind of fell in love with the language of medicine mm-hmm. and thought it, thought you had to be like intelligent to go after and, and thought, thought it was going to be a challenge. So uh, I told the recruiter, I was like, you know, don't call me unless there's a medic with an airborne contract type deal. And uh, so that's that's the Army story. Of wow. Kind of- so when you went down to the MEPS and everything, you went, you already knew that you wanted 68 whiskey. You wanted to go airborne option. You, you had it all lined up then. 
Yeah, yeah. And he called me and he was like, hey, man, we got this thing called Option 40. And I was like, well, oh. what is it? He's like, you know, there's it's Airborne Ranger. And I was yeah. like, yeah, I'll take it. I'll take anything extra. Because like I said, my motivation initially, it, you know, it, it was selfish. It was how do I get out of how do I get out of a bad place to have a bed and have food and have structure um, so that I can afford college one day. Yeah. And um, so there was a lot of patriot, you know, a lot of patriotism behind it. You know, seeing 9-11 for me was the first grade um, and then doing NGRTC. But there was also selfish in the fact that if I need to get out of a bad situation, this is the best way to get out of it. Yeah. Now, did you guys, Paul, serve together then after? No. no. Okay. So you ended up going, let's fast forward then, you end up going through OSIT, Fort Benning, Airborne School, RASP, I'm assuming, and then what, uh, did you end up getting into regiment? So, yeah, so what's funny is, so I did uh, I did basic uh, at Fort Sill, and then I did AIT, like a normal guy, Airborne School first, and I went to RASP, uh, passed RASP just fine, uh, did pre-SOCOM uh, with Major Fisher, Andrew Fisher, and then when I got to SOCOM, I was a dumb 19-year-old. It uh, was four other Ranger buddies, and we got in trouble for underage drinking in the barracks, and uh, <laughs> that resulted in my admission to the 82nd Airborne. Oh uh, my gosh! A, a yeah, few months later. So, uh, you know, fast forward now, you know, that's seven, eight years ago. It's probably the best thing that ever happened to me. Yeah. Um, you know, I was, I was on top of the world. I was 19. I thought I could, you know, I was untouchable. Um, cause you know, RASP is amazing at putting that into your head. Uh, and that failure really, really put me in a good place, um, to remind me that you need to be humble and you need to have humility and there's a lot more hard work that goes involved than just showing up. So yeah, yeah. Grateful for it now. Yeah. It's one of those tough lessons that, um, we all learn when we're younger for sure, man. Um, if you look back, you know, some people say, man, I wish, you know, I could go back. No, because you'd just be just as stupid. So you can't take the knowledge <laughs> with you. You know, it'd be great if we could take the knowledge that we know today and go backwards. But then you start thinking about the sucky life somewhat, you know, that it was at 19, 20, 21 years old anyway. I don't know that I'd want to do that. I'd like to go, I don't know, maybe a little bit. I'd do it all again, man. <laughs> I'd take it on the chin. You know, it's whatever. It got me here. Yeah, I hear you. Okay, so you end up going to the 82nd, and did you spend all your time in the Army with the 82nd at that point then? No, I um. so I set two goals, and I was like, if I go to the 82nd, because obviously at Sockham is up in the air, what unit you're going to go to? I was like, I'm either going to go to a battalion aid station and just get really good at clinical medicine and learn from my doctor, or I'm going to try and go to the line and become a line medic. Uh, so I was the only one that went to that battalion aid station and I ended up as a private first class, uh, serving as NCOIC of my aid station after, uh, a couple months of Command being there. PFC. Wow. Luckily, I mean, I, I luckily had such a great foundation from pre socum of clinical medicine, oh, sure. um, and how to run an aid station because that's what they prepare you for is how to run an aid station. And, uh, so it was just me and a specialist, and then we had our physician overlooking us, who was a captain. And so uh, I worked the clinic for a while, I did a bunch of jumps, a lot of medical coverages. And randomly, I, I told him, I kept expressing my opinion of, hey, I, I want to go back to special operations. I got to, yeah. again, uh, at that time, that was SFAS, you know, uh, Special Forces Selection. And so about eight, nine months of being at the, the BSB life, uh, my platoon leader came in and was like, hey, the eight, the infantry wants an E4 and we need an E6. 
Uh, so we put your name in. We're going to trade you to the line. And so I was ecstatic because I was like, man, I, I can't wait to get out of this support group. I want to go, you know, I want to deploy. I want to go chill with the infantry guys and be that that quote unquote combat medic. Uh, so I went to the uh, to the line unit um, right when I in process. They're like, hey, man, what do you want to do with your life? And I was like, I'm going to be here as little as possible. I'm like, what do you mean? I was like, I'm dropping the SFAS packet. I'm getting out of the 82nd. And they're like, well, that's great, but you're going to owe two years because even though it's a, even though it's a transfer, it's still a PCS, right? You know, they're trying to trap me there. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and uh, so I, I went to that unit, uh, worked as a junior line medic for about two months, and then became a senior line medic of DECO, uh, the mounted guys, and was working with them for a little bit. I did a couple of field exercise, field training exercises with um, civil affairs, and then still had buddies that were in the Q Corps. So I was waking up earlier then PT with the 82nd, working out with my buddies in the Q course, and then working out with the guys in the 82nd. And so I went to the SFAS recruiter, and was he was like, and I was like, hey, man, I'm ready to put my packet in. He's like, you got dropped from Sockham for an alcohol-related incident less than two years ago, man. Not a chance we're going to take you. And um, that put me in a spot where I was really confused on what I wanted to do again, where I, I was like, man, do I wait? Do I, do I suck it up in any second? Do I find somewhere else to go? Um, what's funny is when I went through airborne school, I met a dude um, that was at 160th. And he became a good friend. And he looked at me in airborne school and was like, hey, man, if something doesn't work out with uh, Ranger Bat, you should come to us. So I, I remembered that and called some friends who had worked with that unit in the past and tried to get some details. But there weren't really any details besides like if you want to be the best medic, then you need to go this way. And um, at that time, I felt like that was the right move, which is how do I become, how do I be the best type of medic I can be in the, in the military? So uh, about a month later, I dropped that packet. Uh, I went to Africa with the 82nd and then came back. And one week later, is at Sockham uh, all over again. So I spent 18 months from getting dropped from Sockham uh, to getting back to Sockham. Wow. So nice uh, work. Yeah. But, you know, how much did you know about 160th at this point? I mean, you, you got a chance, obviously, maybe in airborne school every five minutes or so to have a conversation, but you couldn't have known too much about 160th, right? No, I knew nothing. I, I just knew that um, my, my my mentor at the time said, he goes, do you want to be a, a meat eater or a leaf eater? <laughs> when oh, I was yeah. talking about some of the organizations <laughs> that I wanted to try out for. And I said, I wanted to be a, I wanted to be a meat eater, man. He was like, well, do you want to be a medic that shoots mini guns? out of a helicopter and i was like man that sounds sick so uh, <laughs> with the, the real yeah the real attraction was that that drive for the the, the top level of medicine though sure. that's where because there's a lot of you know if i waited out go 18 delta or do i do i stick around and try and go be a flight medic and a lot of my 18 delta friends were just like i don't do any medicine bro um, yeah. if you want to do medicine, you need to go that route. So, you know, it's funny I, that you got that advice because, um, you know, Mike Pretz has been a co-host on this podcast a lot and he was a CSM with 10 special forces group. And there've been people that have reached out to us and to him that have asked that same thing about what should I do? And he always says, you know, if you're looking at it, go to, go to regiment and go that route as far as 68 whiskey, whiskey or, you know, go PJ but if you're going to go 18 Delta, you need to understand you're first a door kicker and you're a member of the team and you're a medic last. But that's everybody's role. I mean, the, the first right. role of everybody there is exactly the same. Yep. And then they have their job that's the secondary component of it. 
So yeah, I heard a I heard a good phrase recently, which is a shooter first, medical always mm. for the for the team guys. Yeah, yeah, much much different than I think a lot of people realize. So all of a sudden, you put your packet in, and you're back at Sakum now. So what's the what's the next step after that? After you, uh, yeah. So um, because I had already done pre Sakum and uh, and Rasp, the senior medic at the time had called Ranger Betts, uh, senior medic, mm. and super lucky that he vouched for me oh. is the only reason i got picked up by the organization was because he put in a good word um which was really funny when i got the phone call that i'd be uh, assessing i was at a change of command ceremony for the 82nd in the rain in june like 100 degrees outside with bayonets so like there's no better 82nd day to get a phone call saying you're getting out of there um <laughs> so sock them then the then the assessment selection process for for that organization and then an internal special operations flight medic course and then the additional um seer schools and um helicopter egress training and things like that so uh, it's a, it's about a two-year pipeline before you're considered operational okay i was going to ask about that so i i don't think a lot of people maybe who hear about the 160th realize the pipeline that it takes and the difficulty and um to achieve that and, and be a member of the 160th you know they they just see that and think it's like Ranger Regiment. Oh, I'll just go through selection and that's it. Yeah, it's a it's a lot more intensive, especially for those pilots. But um, and if you don't have any background, then you go and you earn your spot at the clinic for up to a year, just doing clinical medicine, just to oh, earn really? your spot to assess. Uh, oh yeah, um, and you're getting grilled uh, by a lot of really smart people, and uh, so it's a lot of it's a lot of tr- medical training, but then it's a lot of training on. Um, attention to detail because the whole uh, the whole plus or minus 30 seconds is uh, taken very seriously there so yeah. every, every every briefing as a medic is you got plus or minus 30 seconds on your deadline or you fail that briefing and it's just iterations like that so very very mental yeah uh, a lot of proficiency training uh still still extremely physical because you got to pick guys up like paul and get them into the aircraft <laughs> <laughs> um so while you were there at the 160 and the stuff, what would you say was the biggest takeaway that you learned from there, from being a part of that? Oh, man, there's so many. The The biggest one, I mean, as cheesy it is, as it is, is don't quit. Hmm. Um, that that mentality there really is. It's just like Rangers lead the way, right? Like that that is so embodied and it's it's obvious. Um, and, that, you know, Rangers try and lead the way literally in everything that they do, whether it's personal, financial, at work. And uh, I think 160 does the same exact thing is um, there is such a level of expertise and um, nothing else is tolerated besides the absolute perfect attention to detail that 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 plus or minus 30 seconds you can apply to everything because to bring guys to a target plus or minus 30 seconds from when you tell them they're going to be there is it takes a lot uh of like i said it takes a lot of professionalism expertise to pull that off so um i yeah i would say the top thing i learned from there is just the service to others um and always and because that's all that organization is about mm-hmm. is supporting everybody else so uh, and then being a medic there, you you know you take care of your guys at the organization, but you're also worried about every single other male and female from every other organization that you support or work with. Um, they become your patients too. Um, so it's it's really it's service to others that I would take away the most. Yeah, I'm assuming that you grew up a lot. In, in uh, 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, <laughs> a specialist at the 160th is like a E7 in the in the big army, I'd say. Yeah. It's a lot of responsibility. Yeah, no doubt. I mean, I could totally see that. And of course, you know, most people who listen to this uh, podcast know much about the 160th, or at least as much as that it's divulged and people know about it. But they know at least it's the elite, you know, when you talk about um, their role and responsibility and like you're describing and everything. So to be a part of that, and quite honestly, I'll be total honest here. I I didn't even know 68 whiskeys were part of 160th, <laughs> to be honest with you. Yeah, Um you can thank Gothic Serpent for that. Um, you know, more more fam- more commonly known, I'm sure you guys have talked about a bunch of Black Hawk Down. Is yeah. uh, they started throwing PJs on the back of the aircraft, and we're like, dude, we gotta we gotta take care of these patients in flight. And then somebody was like, ah, that was a great idea. We should probably do that more often. Mm-hmm. What um, if we just already had one of those? Yeah. What if we had our own? <laughs> yeah. um, so that's kind of that was the birth. Yeah. No, that's really cool. So, how long did you end up spay- uh, staying with 160th, or at least the Army in total? Uh, seven years total in the army and only three years, um, of true special operations experience. Yeah. But you weren't done yet because after that, that's where you decided that, um, it gave you, I guess, enough of an itch that you wanted to go fulfill some other goals. Yeah. I, um, I had the, I have the drive. I still would like to I'm pursuing, uh, trying to go to medical school right now. Um, and for the type of specialty I'd like to go into, it seemed best to get out of the military to pursue those goals. Now, was there an option or is there ever a discussion about the army paying for that and you coming back in and serving time or? Yeah, there's a, there's a big discussion for it. I'm, I'm open to the idea. Um, I specifically want to go into neurosurgery. Uh, and there's a lot of, uh, training programs and, uh, limitations around neurosurgery from the DOD side of the house. There's very few active duty neurosurgeons. Um, hmm. So I'm very interested in doing the reserve side. Uh, so serving as a neurosurgeon in the reserves, which allows me to deploy and be involved with uh, the combat side of the house, but being in a hospital that has a lot of acuity of patients so that my skills are very, very uh, sharp so that when I do deploy, um, I'm at the tip top of my game. Man, you think about, again, how far you've come from just being regular 68 whiskey um, to go into the 160th and what you were exposed there to. And then now what you're going and getting, you know, educated and trained into as a neurosurgeon, um, you know, to me, it's like you would be the best candidate, right? You are probably the most qualified individual, in my opinion, to be serving on an active duty status, bringing that knowledge back into the fold and maybe even changing some of the DOD policy that's existing out there that limits, like you're talking about, the neurosurgeons from being able to maybe do some of the stuff that you can do on the uh, civilian populace and on the civilian side. And not to mention kind of the, the you know, the total to- uh, conversation here around traumatic brain injury. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's becoming more and more prevalent. We're seeing it more and more often. And um, sometimes I think it's being lumped in, and we've talked about this with po- uh, post-traumatic stress and some of the symptoms and everything else may be very similar, but yet we need to start parsing out those elements and understand what it is that can actually be treated very differently, and in, in especially uh, in your case, you know, with your, yeah. your background and experience or future background experience. Yeah. That's actually how Ricky and I met. I had a... Uh, service member we were trying to do an intervention he was having some trouble and he kept getting the ptsd answer and uh, you know i'd known this guy for a little while and i'd had my own anecdotal experience 
like we discussed on the last podcast, that these symptoms don't jive completely with PTSD and there's a lot of overlap. And I knew that from my own experience, my own injuries. Um, so a good friend of mine put me in touch with Ricky and we were able to assess, you know, that this was, this wasn't PTSD at all. This was traumatic brain injury. Now we knew that it was when we just talked about this guy's background, Ricky, because yep. we just looked at the round count. It's if you're an 11, Charlie, a goose gunner, you work in a tank, you work in a Bradley and you fired so many rounds. I mean, it's the same as if I know you've been in so many professional fights, except that then that injury is explosive instead of blunt force trauma. Um, so Ricky was kind of like our expert in that case. But what I was curious about, and I never got a chance to ask you, was did you start to, what piqued your interest in TBI? Because that's sort of been, that's like an area of expertise for you. Was that something you experienced while you were in, or was it afterwards, or? Yeah, I, um, I've always been interested in, the, in anything that's considered a debilitating disorder. So I have an obsession with like, for me, I personally feel like I won the lottery, right? I have, I have all four limbs. I have no neurological deficits. I don't have autism. I don't have any of that. I grew up with a brother who has cerebral palsy and who is blind. So he can't, you know, he can't walk, talk or see. Um, so I was really exposed to understanding people with debilitating disorders because all his classmates were also special needs. Um, so I've always had this real big interest in anybody who has, and I know it's repetitive, but that non like lottery, uh, a chance mm -hmm. and just the way people look at them and they don't listen to them and they don't have the patience with it. So when I got into the active duty side of the house, um, I wasn't like too keen on TBI right away. And 82nd, I really didn't know much about it and didn't really study it. Um, Sockham, we don't really, we didn't really talk about it besides the point of injury aspect. And so, um, at one sixtieth, I just, for some, I, one day, well, I'll back up in the 82nd. So I used to study like every Friday night, um, instead of going out, like I would study, well, I was trying to figure out what would challenge me enough, um, that somebody else couldn't do. I was like, how, what can I study that's going to be really difficult? So I wrote a sticky note and I put it on my desk in my barracks room that said, understand the brain. Never, you know, not, didn't go any deeper than that. Like that's a, you know, it's a big ask. It's a big task mm -hmm. like, understand the brain. And so I started trying to learn the anatomy and the function of different regions of the brain and different structures of the brain. And then I went to Sockham and, you know, we do, the neuroanatomy chapter in like three days and you just brush through it, you know, pass the test and move on and you do the cadaver lab and you pass the test and move on. So I fast forward back once again, I'm in the one sixtieth and I just started reading these case studies, um, about guys who had traumatic brain injury and specifically blast traumatic brain injury, BTBI. And it just didn't, like it, it just didn't make sense um, from based off the protocols we had for what we were doing for guys, whether it was uh, rehab or um, training, the way we were looking at it. It just it, like it just didn't make sense to me. So I started reading a lot of case studies um, and I read a bunch. I've read things like the pathophysiology of MTBI, which is mild traumatic brain injury. And then I read the, you know, the pathophysiology of neuroendocrine dysfunction and just kept reading all these papers. And I happened to be enrolled. I was overseas at the time and I was enrolled in, um, the George Washington university, um, for my undergrad. And I was in a health science writing class and we could write about any topic we wanted in health sciences. So I was like, I'm just going to get deep in this, this TBI stuff and write papers on it. 
well, I, I wrote this like 15 page paper for school um, talking about the similarities uh, between post-traumatic stress disorder, uh, traumatic brain injury, and then what we could do uh, as intervention. So it's called post-traumatic hypopituitary dysfunction. So I wrote a whole paper on uh, post-traumatic brain injury, hypopituitary dysfunction for school. And through that research, I saw how much, like you guys said initially, it was like it wasn't being talked about or the DV, the Defense Veteran Brain Injury Center resources, the DVBIC resources just didn't add up or that the DVBIC didn't communicate with the National Intrepid Center of Excellence and that didn't communicate with uh, my protocols and my handbooks and that didn't communicate with what the CDC was putting it and that didn't. So across the board, and when you look at the CDC, if you read any TBI paper, everybody quotes the CDC. First sentence of any TBI papers, it's estimated that 1.7 million people suffer from traumatic brain injury per year. This is considered a you know national endemic. And then that sentence just you know goes away. Um, and so I wrote this paper, like I said, and it talked a lot about neuroendocrine dysfunction. So then I learned about the Warrior Angels Foundation and talked to their neuroendocrinologists on their team and talked to some 18 Charlies that had gone through that treatment. And then I wrote to my battalion surgeon, my flight surgeon at the time, and I was like, here's our current protocol. Here's what I think we should do to change that protocol. And then here's all the papers and articles to support changing that protocol. Wow. Um, and that was my first rotation that was, and my first that, and that was year effective the, you were able to get some changes yeah. in there yeah yeah he uh he, he listened pretty well and i had really good mentors from an or, uh from another organization from a school that i went to um we got it where my interest was peaked even more was conversations we had over there talking about uh neuro we had a lot of conversations about neuroinflammation uh specifically talking about a buildup of neuroinflammation and high performing um, service members and them having PTSD, suicidal ideations and stuff post ETS and retirement. And so that little chemical that they were talking about, it's called endooxygenase. And I was like, man, I don't know anything about that. So then I started researching that and then just kept building. And then I went overseas and wrote that paper. And then through that knowledge and then the paper, I briefed my flight surgeon and he was pretty open to it. Yeah. So wait, I got, you just said something like skipped over it rather quickly. I got to get back to it. So there, there was a paper or something that you've discovered. I forget what you called it there. That um, you started seeing a pattern post military service. Yeah, that was well, stronger. Go ahead. No, no. I, was, I mean, yeah, it was just stronger or something in those individuals uh, post versus during. Uh, yeah, because, and the, and the reason I think that happens because that's when the people admit to the problem, right? You're talking about very high functioning service members at, at, at the top level. So that's when the who, data was collected, uh, it, more, yeah. more, more prevalent. You, you would see a spike right. because, all right, I yeah. get you. Yeah. Because right. they didn't want to talk about it on active duty because then no. you may get labeled. Well, you, you may not get, get to do your job. Right. Yeah. Right. Okay. So we, we probably need to rewind a little bit because <laughs> no, it's fine. Oh, no, it's great. Um, because I think a lot of people, like you said, there's a lot of people walking around with TBI. And we've all seen the NFL movie about CTE. But yep. I think there's a big gap in knowledge about what TBI actually is. And there's a few different kinds. Like, mm -hmm. as somebody who just shot a cannon for a few years in the Army, you think, all right, TBI is when you bonk your head. You know? Like, you got, you got a poke, and you got a bonk, and that one's a bonk. <laughs> but there's more to it. Like... So can you talk about like, what would you say are the top 
three or four things that people need to understand about TBI. Like there are different kinds. Yeah, um, yeah. So there, there's different. What I'd say the, the top things. There are different kinds. So you can you look at them traditionally. They're look at from severity and then type. Um, the problem with severity scoring. So we score them as mild, moderate, and severe. Those severity scores are based off something called the Glasgow Coma Scale, which is like your consciousness scale to keep it in layman's terms. So it's like you got a bonk and you were able to tell me who you are, where you are, where you're at. Okay, so your GCS, your Glasgow Coma Scale score is great. You probably have a mild traumatic brain injury versus I hit you in the head with a baseball bat. You pass out. You tell me that the president is Eisenhower and it's the year 2020. Um, you probably have a moderate to TBI. And then you look at someone who gets hit by a car and then they're in a coma. That's obviously a severe TBI. And those are classification scores. The problem with language in the military like that, when you look at mild versus moderate versus severe, is if you have a mild TBI, you're good to go, right? Because like you said, you understand it's a bonk. If you have a, a mild concussion, right? You have a mild TBI, you have a concussion, then hey, one week without video games, I'm back on, I'm back on target. The problem with that is in a lot of literature, um, there's a ton of data that supports this, is mild TBI symptoms can resolve up to one week, but you could have secondary and tertiary symptoms that will not show until 3, 6, 9, 12, and up to 36 months post-injury from one mild TBI at any point in your life. So you, when you're talking about mild traumatic brain injury or any traumatic brain injury, I say the top thing to understand is these things can be cumulative. So you got to understand a person's full history. So I'm talking from getting in that car wreck as a six-year-old, getting rock in your head as a 15-year-old uh, wide receiver at high school football, and your or your coach punches you in the head as a high school football player to get you amped up, and it rings your bell. And now you're like you said, you're an 11 Charlie, and you rock 2,000 mortars at a range, and you're puking at the end of the night, and everybody's cheering you on. So. Um, I would say understanding the full history that there's consequences, uh, understanding that traumatic brain injury is any is an injury that results in anything that's not normal physiologic function of the brain. So there's six million definitions. You know, CDC will say it's a blower jolt to the head that causes you to have amnesia, nausea, vomiting, and dizziness or headaches. And then you look at the Journal of American Medicine, um, and they'll say same thing. They'll say it's a blow or a jolt to the head that leads to amnesia a headache, um, and disruption. And then you have another place that has a different definition, another place has a different definition. So when you take all these definitions together and you just make one definition, you just call it any injury to the central nervous system that leads to a disruption of normal physiologic function. Okay. So, but those functions, God, I hate to cut you off, but those functions you're saying that, um, like headache and nausea and stuff like that can occur up to 36 months or you're going to experience yeah. that right. Really? Okay. Yes. So, Okay, if I had a traumatic brain injury, a concussion, or whatever the case may be, and then two years later, you know, I'm not going to think that my headache is caused by anything that happened two years previously. I would think it's something that's related more to the current situation. You know, maybe, you know, I've got a headache just because I got a flipping headache. Maybe I got a headache because, you know, I ate something or, you know, the weather changed. You know what I'm saying? So it's sort of, of like, course. so how how would one be able to put one plus one equals two? Well, right. I think you have to, you have to look at the, we were discussing this before. You have to look at the event itself. Like, yeah, but a physician will, but I'm not, would, are we, what we're talking about here though is we right. have to train the individual to think what you're describing. Well, not necessarily because just like I have a jump log, 
I have a round count too. Yeah. Like there's documentation of how much ammo was requested in, the, in which I fired and whether whatever weapon system you're, you're firing. So you can kind of take for granted that if this guy fired this many weapon or this many rounds of this kind of weapon system, then that's a fact. If you've had so many professional bouts as a fighter, you've been hitting the head so many times, like that's how you identify that. I, I believe, I don't know, correct me if I'm wrong, Ricky, you're the, you're the man here. <laughs> definitely not, definitely not an expert, just a, just enthusiast. There are some real experts in this field. Um, yeah, it's a it's a good question. It's and it's tough. And I, I don't want to come on, you know, I don't want to come on the podcast and have guys thinking if they have a headache right now that they're suffering from traumatic brain injury or something. Uh, but they very well, you very well could be. So what it what it comes down to is, it's a whole clinical picture. That's the difficulty of this. There's no there's no easy button with traumatic brain injury. Um, there's no great diagnostic developed yet. Still, there's no good di- um, there's no good screener developed yet. I'd say. Um, and so it's it's looking at when when did I feel normal or what was my normal what's how have I been since then um, and is this my new normal and is that is that all right and all right's never good enough and and I and I tell some of my friends that where they'll tell me they're like well I don't sleep and I have headaches and you know sometimes I get dizzy um, when I'm walking around but it's all right. And I'm like, no, all right's not good enough. We have to really kill that stigma that it's all right to not be normal. And I think because of things like operational tempo and demand for the job and everybody on a, especially a special operations team is, is so important, right? If I go down, then who, who's going to step up? Or if I go down, then that dude doesn't get to spend time with his kids or that girl doesn't get to have her, her, her wedding. So um, a lot of these things stay quiet for a long time. Um, and then they just, they couple on top of each other. Um, so it, it, it's tough. I know that doesn't really truly answer your question of when do I know to speak up? But. No, I, I think, uh, I, I, again, this the episode here is really to help people understand, you know, what you're describing well enough that they can start hopefully putting two and two together to say, yeah. okay, you know what? I'm feeling a headache or I'm feeling dizzy, dizzy uh, or nausea or whatever maybe it has something to do with the fact that two years ago I had a mild concussion or a, you know, a medium concussion or whatever the physician may have told me at that time frame or whatever I felt, but I didn't share with anybody, yep. you know, and you know, guys might be listening to this gals, whatever, like right now and going, Holy crap. I never, I never put the two together. I yeah. remember that, you know, it was three years later and I was having really strong, you know, challenges and stuff but I just thought there was another reason. Um, and I think that's what's so important here for me to take away is you're, you're looking at it even one step further. If a command and a leader understands, you know, then, then you can manage it that way, right? If it's an individual and you're keeping a log or you know how many is out there that you fired in rounds or how many concussions that you've had or whatever, then you need to be keeping track of that too and realizing but most people are not going to do that. Most people are not going to take that effort to manage that on a daily basis, right? Because we suck it up, we move on. That's what we're talking about. Yeah. You yeah. know? Uh, yeah. You deal with the pain. It's part of the, the job. We, we knew that when we signed up. And you suck it up and you move on. And if I'm feeling a headache, it's because, you know, shit, the weather outside. Or, yeah, my, my, I mean, I got a screwed up back, man. It's probably causing a nerve damage up my, you know you know, up in my head. And that's the reason why, because I've been having some spasms. It's probably all related and no one is ever thinking, 
I don't think. No. To put everything together here. But this is fascinating because they should. Yeah, they should. Well, I think it's part of the culture, like you're saying, Rob. It's a, it's a suck it up culture. Or, or, you know, there are times when I was doing my job, I had pain or what, what have you. And I didn't even care why it was happening because it was irrelevant. Like, yeah. I'm, I'm going to go and I'm going to do what I need to do. And if I deal with it, I yeah, deal I'm with being it. counted on. It, it doesn't matter. I have a question while we have you on. Um, what's the, what are some of the differences between blunt force trauma and exposure to overpressure, concussion from overpressure? Like, are those the same kind of injuries? Do they present the same? Are the long-term effects the same? It's like four or five questions. But. That's, a, that's, a great, uh, that's a really good question. That's a question I, uh, I read a lot about and I'm kind of obsessed with. Uh, so blunt force trauma, there's, so with, with traumatic brain injury, there's always a primary injury and there's always a second in, secondary injury regardless of the type. So if I hit you in the forehead with a baseball bat, like that blunt trauma, or you go helmet to helmet like an NFL player, that's the primary injury. That bruise to your skin, that cracked your skull, the laceration of your forehead, that's the primary injury. Now the brain is, uh, you know, it's a nice organ, squishy, uh, and it sits in this fluid, but there's room inside the, inside the skull for it to move. Um, unfortunately, humans were not designed, you know, for that brain to move. It wasn't, the skull wasn't made. It doesn't have a nice, you know, Tempur-Pedic cushion in the front of it. It's hard bone. So when you get hit with that baseball bat, your brain, your head's going to go one direction. And as your skull moves backwards, your brain's going to go forward and it's going to hit the front of your skull. And then as the skull now moves the opposite direction, the brain moves the opposite direction, you get what's referred to as a coup and a contra-coup motion, a coup contra-coup injury. So the front of the brain gets, the tissue gets bruised and it goes backwards and the back of the brain gets bruised. That's what you see a lot in, uh, in blunt force trauma, also in blunt force trauma from that uh, that coup contra coup mo- motion, something that's really, really, really never talked about. We always think about the brain because of pictures. That's just just one organ, this one system, right? But there's all these little structures inside the brain, like the pituitary gland and the hypothalamus. The pituitary gland is what uh, the hypothalamus communicates down the pituitary gland, and your pituitary gland secretes all your hormones. Um, well, the pituitary gland also has its own neck. And when the brain or your neck bends and the brain's moving like that, the pituitary gland also stretches out and bends and does its own coup contra coup and has an air uh, and has a moment, whether it's 0.1 second, 0.00001 second of ischemia or lack of oxygen. So you look at blunt force trauma, you see the brain moving forward and backwards and bruising and hitting different points of the skull, depending on which way that brain moves. And you get uh, contusions on the brain, which leads to um, protein and uh, plaque builds up. Um, you get what's you get a lot of what that like amyloid buildup you hear about, or you hear about this protein called tau protein, um, which is for the NFL you hear about chronic traumatic encephalopathy. So chronic, obviously long term traumatic, blunt force trauma, helmets hitting helmets, and then encephalopathy is uh, referring to the swelling or the pathology, so the disease of the brain tissue. So chronic traumatic disease of the brain tissue. So if I keep hitting my brain and it's swelling and then there's contusions and there's lack of oxygen, then I get what's called chronic traumatic encephalopathy. You can't see that in something like a CT or an MRI when they go to the hospital. So it goes unnoticed and then um, they go have an autopsy, like you heard about guys like Junior Seau, and then they look inside the corpus callosum, which is this little bridge uh, between the two hemispheres, and you see gapping. That's where you see that definitive CTE, and that's how CTE is graded. It, it's graded on, 
I think a one to four scale, one being mild separation in the corpus callosum and four being uh, very wide gapping. The worse the gap, the worse the symptoms or the worse the severity of CT. What, and go what ahead. Kind of, what kind of symptoms are those? I mean, they're just like... They're, they're like myriad? Yeah, like you're, you can, you guys will have headaches, they'll have, uh, they can have hallucinations, delusions, amnesia, fatigue, sleep problems, um, a lot of chronic headaches, pain syndromes, um, and a, a lot of those guys, if you, if you read the, the literature on it, will just be like, something's wrong with me, but I don't know what's wrong with me, but something's wrong with me, and they try and medicate, and they try and uh, alleviate those symptoms, and then typically it has led to suicide in the past, at least the popular cases where CT has been diagnosed, obviously. Um, and what's really creepy about a lot of CT guys, is they, they spare their brains when they do the, when they perform the act so that their heads could be studied. You're, you're talking about these effects and, you know, the, the fact that they may have certain feelings of, you know, suicidal depression, those types of things that they may be living with because of what you just described. My question is, if it did that much damage, and of course, I'm thinking through my own past history while you're saying this and thinking, yeah. oh, my God, yeah. And and does is there, I'm assuming that there are lasting effects that go beyond the 36 months. So in other words, you, you may see certain symptoms that give you a trigger or an idea that you've had a situation that occurred that you may not have recognized was as severe as you thought it was initially. But those things like the, the throwing up or the dizziness or the headaches are trying your body trying to tell you, Hey guys, you know, this isn't right here. Uh, but what I'm also hearing from what you just said is that, no, that's just to tell you that the symptoms, the initial trigger symptom may come up to tell you, hey, there's something wrong, but there's lasting effects here that have happened to the brain that's going to go well beyond the 36 months. And, and I'm assuming the brain can't repair itself in, in those aspects, or, am I, or I'm off base here. So you, um, you think about your brain right now is in, is in a neuro-permissive environment. It's in a permissive environment, right? Your, your cone, is, it's chilling at home. It's drinking beer on the couch, just hanging out, no, nothing, no, no worries. Next thing you know, it's getting rocked, and now the brain's in a non-neuropermissive environment. So that primary injury happens, then you can have a secondary uh, injury, you know, the, uh, or you can call the brain hitting the skull primary. Well, then what happens is to try and alleviate what just happened, the brain will quote-unquote set itself on fire, which is it rushes a bunch of inflammatory chemicals to that area to try and bring blood to what just got injured. Well, if there is too much of an injury and too much pro-inflammatory is sent to the brain and not enough anti-inflammatory and the balance is off, then you have a buildup of neurotoxic substances in the brain and that neuroinflammation, um, uh, that chronic neuroinflammation is what leads to those problems and then those injuries on the brain versus something like blast TBI, uh, like Paul was asking about. When the shock wave comes in, what's so dangerous about blasts is it's, um, gosh, I'm blanking on the word right now. It's not the shock wave. It's the shock winds are more, uh, the winds are more dangerous than the wave. And I can't break that down for you right now off the top of my head. But uh, so the, when the blast comes through, uh, above 4 PSI will penetrate the front of the skull, the thick part of the skull. Um, the thinnest part of your skull, which is, this is going to make you cringe, Paul. The thinnest part of the skull is your temporal region right here but what do we all love to wear we all love high cut helmets um because they look cool yet this is the most dangerous part of your 
your your skull as far as susceptibility to injury. Um, so it's nice and thin. So you have a blast wave come in, and that blast wave can cause that brain to move. But what it will do is your neurons have this layer of fat on them called um, your your axons have this thing called myelin. Well, the myelin sheath is what makes what's called white matter. So a dense concentration of white ma- of myelin makes white matter neurons. Well, you have unmyelinated neurons, and that's what's called gray matter. Well, gray matter is very rough. It's a rough substance, and white matter is nice and smooth because it's covered in fat. When a blast wave comes in, it will rip the myelin sheaths right off the axons. And without the myelin sheath, you get con- conductivity um, delays. So when you're talking the word of trillions of myelinated neurons, and you go down to billions of myelinated neurons, you're now at a deficit. But the other thing that will happen is it'll cause the white matter and the gray matter to move because of the way the blast works. And the rough gray matter is what will rip uh, white matter and uh, myelinate, uh, myelinated tissue right off, the, right off the neuron. So the blast wave, instead of when you look at the pictures and you see like a coup contra coup, you'll see like a red spot here and a red spot here because that's where the brain hit. When you look at blast wave, you see... Um, areas popping up all over the brain of what got damaged because it's a, you know, it's a overpressure that waves going through and it's hitting all that stuff. Well, the difference between blast TBI victims and blunt TBI victims, chronic traumatic encephalopathy is very concurrent with repetitive uh, blunt trauma um, TBI. The literature from guys like Dr. Pearl his lab at Uniform Services University, the Center for Neuroscience and Rehabilitation, he has the brain repository. Um, he has done autopsies for vet service members who have suffered from blast TBI, um, and he's come up with the diagnos- diagnosis of interstitial astral glial scarring. Or sorry, it's not interstitial, but it's astral glial scarring, and I'm sorry, or interface astral glial scarring. What that means is uh, so you have neurons, like an operator, this single operator, and then you have glia, which are their supporting neurons. That's like me, the medic, right? I'm your supporting guy. I'm here for you. Well, the astrocyte is something that is able to form very rapidly. So when the blast comes through and all that stuff gets ripped up, uh, glial cells rush to, that, rush to the site for help. They run to the X, per se, to start rendering aid. Well, as those things build up on each other um, and they don't heal properly, they don't... Um, relax properly trying to keep this really simple they they cause scarring and in dr pearl's words in his literature it's called the brown dust of ias because on microscopy only you'll see these very weird brown pigmentations on the brain tissue and those symptoms of inner uh interface astral glial scarring are the same things you hear about with guys suffering from chronic cte as far as the i'm hearing voices stuff super wrong with me i have chronic headaches uh, the, one of the best cases to talk about, and um, I'm, I'm, I can talk about this because uh, I've met his father, and I, I ran. I was fortunate to help run a hospital in his name. Was uh, SEAL operator one Ryan F. Larkin. He um, he was a breacher, a sniper, and a medic with the SEALs. Uh, he was exposed to a lot of blasts as a breacher. He did a bunch of brutal rotations overseas. He got out of the SEALs, uh, and he told his family that. Things were wrong with him. He had these mental health issues, PTSD type symptoms. He had headaches. Um, he just felt like something was wrong. Kept going to the VA. They kept pumping him with meds. You know, take this antidepressant, take that antidepressant, take this anti-anxiety, uh, anxiolytic medication. Um, and 
he kept telling them something was wrong. And I don't know the specific numbers, but he was offered over 15 medications in a month of like in a six month span. Well, Ryan told his parents that if anything happened to him to donate his brain to research. Um, and unfortunately, a couple months later, uh, his parents found him in his basement and where he spared his head uh, after successfully uh, attempt, uh, committing suicide. And they donated Ryan's brain to Dr. Pearl's lab, and he was found to have the IAS diagnosis under microscopy. So Ryan was a victim of astral glial scarring. Wow. Yeah. Wow, wow, wow. No. If you do have this astral glial scarring, or you have suffered these TBIs, like, is there anything that you can do? Because that seems to be a pattern. You go to the VA and you're like, hey, something's wrong. And they're like, well, you have anxiety, so here's some anxiety medication. And they pump you full of pills. And they don't seem to work, or they don't quite resolve the issue, or they work temporarily, or they just provide a little bit of relief. Yep. I mean, do, do any of these medications that are for these other things like depression or PTSD or anxiety, are any of those helpful for well, TBI? Yeah. Well, they they can be, right? So if you have a guy who's suffering from like very chronic TBIs but is depressed because of it and they can't get out of bed and function – but they take something like a selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor, the SSRI, and that helps them buy into treatment, and that helps them get out of bed and believe that there's a way forward, then, there, then there's a necessity for that medication, right? There's, there's, that's any medication. That's like, I know everybody makes the joke of drink water and take an ibuprofen, but even ibuprofen could be consequential if, if you're just taking it for the hell of it, right? So if that medication is warranted, of course, I would, they, could, they need it. However, if you have someone with chronic neuroinflammation, um, neuroendocrine deficits, and nutrition problems and sleep problems, uh, what I like to call it, my colleagues that I've worked with on this project like to call it, is you have to make a multidisciplinary approach to all these different pillars, right? So if their psychology is messed up, yeah, therapy might be beneficial, right? So if you've been blown up a bunch and it caught, and you get vivid memories of getting blown up, you might need to work that out with psychology. That's a good, that's a great thing. Talking through it and coming up with strategies for breathing and mindfulness and yoga all have positive effects on the brain. Exercise causes good effects on the brain. Then your diet is going to be key, right? Um, your gut and your brain come from the same, basically come from like the same stem cells uh, during development. And there's what's called the gut-brain axis, which is bi-directional. Yeah, and it's it's proven. There's a lot of uh, science to support it. Um, so if you don't have a neuro, if you don't have a permissive gut environment, then you probably don't have a good uh, brain environment. So I mean, we've all done it, right? We crush McDonald's or we crush too much candy, and next thing you know, your brain's like, "Holy shit!" You get that head rush or you feel really sick. Um, a lot, but yeah, right, <laughs> right. But yeah. that that's the that's all the time. So uh, fixing nutrition is going to be really really important. Fixing that gut microbiome is going to be really important. Uh, you might have audio deficits where tinnitus isn't a good thing, right? It's normal to most of us, but tinnitus isn't a good thing. And you can do rehab to help work on tinnitus. Or if you're dizzy, you might have a stone in your ear uh, that's stuck because you have these stones that tell you where you are in time and space. If you're not hearing things properly, like say you require hearing aids or um, things are quieter than they used to be, your ears and your eyes are your first thing for threat perception. So what, what's common when you talk to guys who have PTSD? Or what's the common thing with veterans? Oh, they can't be in public. Oh, they can't go to a restaurant or this and this. Well, for guys that have suffered from chronic uh, brain injury, there's a reason for it. 
is if your ears and eyes are offset in any capacity, uh, for someone who's normal, when I'm sitting in a restaurant and I'm hearing, you know, plates clicking and the kids crying in the corner and blah, blah, blah. But my friend who I haven't seen in 10 years is talking to me. We're having a great time. For the person who has deficits in that system, their brain, instead of saying, hey, Paul's talking to me right now, everything's okay, they're going, everything in this room is trying to kill me because it can't siphon the variables out and say what's important. So then the brain becomes overloaded and it goes into what's called a sympathetic response. It's the same thing with your eyes. If your eyes are offset because the blast wave caused a retinal injury or a retinal uh, hypothalamic injury, um, and now you're either offset your eyes or your depth perception is messed up or there was ischemia to the blood flow to your eyes, uh, then what you perceive as your outside world is no longer correct. And so once again, you go into this mild um, sympathetic response 24-7, and that's exhausting. And we, f- we forget that the first thing that the, there's two things, well, there's four things the brain wants to do, right? It wants to fight or flight and it wants to feed or digest. At the, and at the most primitive level, your brain wants to reproduce and it wants to survive. So if you have deficits that make you think that the world's attacking you, what are you going to do? You're going to, you're going to try and survive and you're going to reproduce. So, um, you don't want to be in public. You don't want to be at that concert with all that noise. You don't want to be around all these people because you think everything's a threat. Now, to counter my own argument there, yes, there's adaptation from war. I will never deny that. If you're around high threat experiences, last time you saw a bunch of trash on the side of roads and IED, there is acclimatization. There's adaptation, of course. I'll never take that away, right? If last time you were in a big group of people, a suicide best went off, I, I understand that. However, those are things that can be worked on. But when there's true deficits, there's true deficits. And those are very common themes amongst the guys that um, I've been able to talk to that did, have these issues. Did I hear you say correctly as little as four PSI? Yeah. It takes uh, over four PSI penetrates the brain. Okay. Or penetrates the skin. So, I, I mean, I don't, I don't know the physics and, you know, what the distance is. But, I mean, if you're in, let's say, something even like armor, uh, artillery where gunnery is happening and you know you're just across the street and gp mediums or whatever and you're waiting your turn basically to go do your gunnery mission or something of that nature that blast i remember even you know I, geez i'm talking i want to say it was maybe a third of a mile a quarter of a mile away i remember the blast just you know coming all the time and never thought much about it except that wow the force you just the power you know but we didn't think anything of you know even walking around and and doing all of that and i i when you say four psi it's so small that i never really thought about that um wow and there's there's i mean there's so much you're saying right now that's just like holy crap man people are probably listening to this like i am and going wow um i need to rethink my whole past history here what yeah, you know taking a little trip down memory lane. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's what i did the first time i talked to ricky i like went back through my head and i'm like yeah that's um that's a lot yeah a that's lot not good man yeah if it happened to this seal yep. i guess you know like some parts of your body are able to heal itself yep. you know and um you know thankfully that occurs but if it happened to this seal and it was you know not long after he returned and everything are we saying also that 
over time, if you're able to adjust and you're able to do through some of this rehabilitation that you were describing that could bring some function back to your and normalcy back to your life, that it takes less stress off your, your brain and maybe perhaps your brain can recharge itself somehow or, or help oh, itself. Definitely. Oh, really? Definitely. Okay. Okay. Oh, thank God. Uh, so, <laughs> right. so there's good things. There's bad things about time. And yeah. yet there is also good things. So after you move beyond some period, you may start seeing um, positive changes occurring. Right. And there's, and it's very dependent on from person to person. I've, I have friends who, unfortunately, you know, the megaton IED went off six feet in front of them, you know, and they have no problems right now. They had horrible memory issues 10 years ago when it happened. You know, they couldn't find their keys. They're getting arguments with their wives. And then they they are like the happiest person on the planet right now. Did no intensive therapy and they're okay. But on the flip side, I've had people who have just been in a car accident or have only had minimal blast exposures and their whole world's turned upside down. And we, we had to do intensive therapy with them. So it's very, it's how do you, very how do you know? I mean, it, it so how do you know that everything's fine without say having a CT scan or an MRI or something like that to the head? You know? So the, the problem with CT and MRI to the head is you're not going to see things like CTE or astral glial scarring or even uh, white matter changes. Uh, so there's, there's a lot of different forms of technology out there. So there's something called diffuse tensor imaging uh, MRI. So DTI MRI that does is it looks for white matter density in the brain. Um, and there's data to show that, People who have repetitive blast exposures will have a lower blast or a lower white matter density on DTI MRI, like we talked about earlier. A traditional MRI doesn't see that. There's things like functional MRI. A functional MRI will um, look for blood flow in the brain. So it will show blood flow to different regions of the brain. Um, and that can help tell you whether or not there's a part of the brain that might be ischemic or a part that's not getting the proper level of blood flow. And then you can associate that to the deficit that they might be having and be like, well, obviously your speech is off because that part of your brain isn't getting the proper amount of blood flow. And then there's things like uh, spec scans uh, and spec scan kind of does the same thing there is it shows um, it highlights blood flow to different regions of the brain. Psychologists or psychiatrists have been using spec scans for years for a really, really long time. They'll get a patient who's having emotional disturbances. They put them in the scan. They're like, Oh, the left side of your brain's not getting highlighted on the scan. We need to do therapy that brings blood flow back to that side of your brain. Um, so it's a very hot topic in uh, research right now, especially for the DOD, is trying to find out that imaging tool. Is there an imaging tool we can use to pick up these things early and often? Are there biomarkers we can uh, draw from your blood to pick up these injuries early and often? Um What's the other things? Is there headsets that we can put on a guy right now and see that pupillary changes we're talking about? Is there an easier audiology test that we can put you on um, right now? A stool sample is a hot topic right now, too, because you can look at the gut microbiome uh, through the stool sample and you can see if it's a non-permissive gut environment. Yeah. Um, so if you can correct that, and I know it's like a gross test, right? But you take the stool sample, you see it's all jacked up you do this better diet, you retake the stool sample, and then you see uh, improvement um, through the gut microbiome that way. And then you, you, you go like that. So the way I, I talk about it is if you don't fix all these pillars, 
and this this would be a whole long you know this would be a really long podcast we went through all these pillars and what they all mean if you don't fix all of them because they all feed into each other then it, it's not gonna it doesn't get better um, and so there's three things right there's a commitment that I have to show you data that something might be wrong with you um, you want to have a medical intervention of course like if there's a problem with you you want the, the clinical team to help you but one of the biggest things that doesn't get talked about a lot is buy-in from the patient. It is a lot of buy-in from the patient to want to get better on something like this when you're really messed up. And it's a lot of work to get better. Um, my buddy right now is in a therapy program. Uh, I actually helped him and my colleague and I helped get him into the treatment that he's in right now. And he has to wear glasses that have giant blinders right here because his eyes from repetitive blast injury, the muscles aren't as strong as they used to, so they just cross um, if he tries to focus anything right here. So he has to wear these special blinders that his eyes don't go into these fields of vision so that they don't go across and he doesn't pass out or get really sick. For the people who are listening to this that are wondering, Ricky, what, yeah. when you were putting your fingers there, yeah. it's almost like um, what you see on the horses on a horse track where they've got the blinders on yeah. and they focused right. They, You're saying it's almost to the pupil. Uh, they brought it that close. Yep. To cut off everything Fields from of vision, crazy, yeah, yeah, and then there he's not allowed to run on treadmills right now. He's not allowed to ride. Uh, he's not allowed to cycle unless it's stationary because through balance testing, they're finding that his balance system is all thrown off from repetitive blasts. And then they've figured out that because his eyes and, and balance are so messed up, that's what has led to a lot of his sleep disturbances. And and it just it just kept perpetuating. So now he is in right now to help with his his eyes he has to wear these goofy glasses and then for his balance he has to do you know an hour to two hours of balance work per day just to try and get minimal improvement over time and that's that's the part we need to understand is yes it's easy to attack the clinical team and say that we're missing it it's easy to attack our our strategic level leaders and say that we're not bringing right awareness and while i agree that the campaign can be stronger and be better we also need to help our patients understand the level of buying that they're going to have to put in to get better. And how long did this duration of how long they may have to go through this, you know, yep. it d just depends on the individual patient then I'm assuming. Yep. So it's much, it's not much different than I guess some major injury that you may yep. have, you know, you have a, a, a tear an ACL or you do whatever, there's a rehabilitation that you're going to have to go through. It's not going to be easy. If you want to get back to the same peak performance that you were in before, you know, you're going to have to put in the time, the effort, the energy in, and even then diet and everything is so important because, you know, you don't want to put additional weight on that may put additional stress yep. on the, so I, I, I get it, but I guess, how do you, how do you identify, you know, like in your case, Paul, you know, in, in the case of Kyle, you know, when you're talking about TBI, where they're, they recognize that fight or flight, that it's very strong, but we're also talking about what you just described earlier, Ricky, is probably 90% of people in combat arms, you yeah. know? So, I mean, if, if you yeah. served in... It's alarming. Yeah, right. I mean, if, if you know, there's a, this is affecting a lot of people, and yeah. we need to have a single... Um, way of measuring the the different degrees and variations that you described earlier in the the episode as well as a single way of identification like you described with um you know 
tackling that like the you mentioned the different mris and in all these different things that you can use you know audio and all of that so if we have a way in which we could just package this together that says okay guy you know you're showing enough of what you you've described is enough that we need to put you in this program whether you're on active duty or not but this is a very it sounds very costly yeah and so that's going to be it's not going to be received very well within especially the private insurance uh, companies because they're not just going to want want to run all of these tests because you say you have a headache what what makes you think that that headache that you're having or that dizziness is anywhere related to something you're describing that happened three years ago right yeah that's i mean but that's sort of the rub it is anyway yeah when it comes to medical treatment well they treat the it, symptom it, it's right and so you've got a headache we've got to fix the, the headache money, you know yeah. Yeah. Like, do, you, do you really want to spend the money? What was so surprising to me as I learned, started learning about this is that it's so comprehensive. Yeah. Yeah. Because, again, dumb grunt, I get bonked on the head. I'm like, okay, I, just, I messed up my noodle. No big deal. Just got a bad noodle. But it's all these other things. And But, geez, it goes back to your high school days of when you were stupid and hitting guys helmet to helmet. You sure. know, that was the first uh, thing that occurred to you. Then you go into the, the army and you're shooting off, you know, um, mortar rounds and everything. And the concussion of that, you know, not to mention the blasts that are happening around you as well. You know, I mean, it, and it just it's repetitive and things that you but you don't think much about it. Um, any of that. I don't think much Until about anything anymore. Ricky. I've been bonked many times. <laughs> <in the head. laughs> yeah. You know. And uh, it begs the question. And my mentor, I have a mentor that um, is really good on this topic and introduced me to a lot of it. He, you know, he begged the question of, well, then how do we build a better, resilient uh, warfighter from the from the get go? Yeah. You know, what can we do to minimize? Or, you know, obviously we want to minimize exposure to these things, but if we can't, what things can we put in place that will make the brain just like a muscle um, stronger and more resilient to these um, exposures? Yeah. So, Wow. I mean, you think about like even in, you know, Calf Scouts armor and stuff like that, they're wearing a CVC helmet that honestly is only, you know, the only purpose behind that thing is so that in case you happen to hit your head on a the, the corner, you know, of something inside the, the vehicle that you don't get in, you know, a big time ouchie, but you, you still kind of feel it because, you know, you hit it strong enough and such. But other than that, what you were talking about, and you were talking about Paul. I mean, you got the, you know, the you've got the earmuffs on the side of it, and the rest of it's just a soft shell or a little bit harder shell and everything. Um, again, I'm I'm just like thinking back of ninety percent and a hundred percent of combat arms could be affected by what what we're describing here. How do you how do you then have enough data that you can? Um, quickly build some kind of, you know, I don't know, algorithm or study that you can ask a series of questions to, to narrow down the severity when what course of action needs to happen and whether or not it's serious enough, serious enough to warrant um, explaining to the individual that they may have long-term effects or they need to create some kind of different program. You know, I'm kind of trying to set you up for that, but there's gotta be, (laughs) you know, and it may be what you guys are working on. Um, Right. Uh, so what I can tell you is that there's some really, there's really intelligent people, you know, PhDs, MDs, DOs, MD, PhDs out there right now that their life's work is this exact topic. They've been doing this longer than I've been alive. Right. And dedicated themselves for it. Uh, the problem is, is trying to 
bring it from high up down to the end user level. And what what got, what PhDs do and what scientists do is they publish their results in medical literature. Well, unless you're a weirdo like me and you see a paper talking about you know IL six uh, neuroinflammatory markers and people with blast trauma, no one's going to read that paper except right. for you know a weirdo like me. I'm like, oh man, I got I got to see what's going on here, and then trying to decipher the hundreds if not thousands of papers on this topic that do not agree with each other oh, this, I was say, yeah, yeah. this biomarker works next yeah. paper that biomarker is shit this biomarker works or the next paper this biomarker works and, and just this scan works this scan doesn't work so it's really hard and i think and i'll always give credit where credit is 100 percent due is there's people working on it and there's people trying really really hard to do exactly what you just asked for will it happen in a year probably not you're, you're probably looking at the 10 to 20 year from now uh, a fighter that's Jeez. probably going to benefit from it because it's it's so hard to bring it down. And if you look at uh, Congress, just um, the congressional report on CTE research just dropped on the eighth of August, twenty twenty. Uh, we spent one hundred and forty million dollars on uh, CTE research from fiscal year fourteen to nineteen. And they, what they did really well was they identified where where we have gaps, but. So that was six years of research, right? And in six years of research, we said, we don't know how many service members have CT. It's impossible to predict. We don't have the technology to, to identify it uh, without autopsy. We don't have the screener to be able to pick up for it. We don't have the blood panel to pick up for it. And they spent a lot of money just to find those gaps. So if that was six years, now take another six years to answer each one of those gaps of $700,000 researcher, you know, $70 million research questions. So that's why I, that's why I say uh, things like 10 to 15 years from now, I think we'll see a lot of benefit um, from that research. But what about, you know, maybe the listeners like, but what about me? And you're hundred percent right. Or you're like, what about my patient? Um, and I think from what uh, I've developed and like full disclaimer, it definitely should be at the beginning of the podcast is I don't have any professional credentials in, in anything neuro related. I've just read a lot of papers and talked to a lot of people. Um, is you got to listen to your patient and you got to have a, you have a, have to have a finely tuned ear for what they're saying. And you have to think about what normal is. And then anything that's not normal is not normal. And you got to go in on that. And an example I'd love to use, and this was a real world experience is I had a, you know, a 16 year pilot at my organization that said that he was struggling to route plan when we were, so I, I drew out these little seven pillars because I like to have a graphical representation, and I did this with uh, Paul's buddy as well. Um, and we walked pillar by pillar, and I go, cognitively, how are you doing? Well, when you get asked that question, you're not a medical person. You're like, cognitively, I'm fucking smart as hell. You know, like, I, I'm, not, I'm not dumb, dude. But So you got to break it down and say, hey, man, in your daily job, yeah. are, is there anything that's hard that used to be easy? Well, when a 16-year pilot tells you that they can't route plan, and it's and it's it's taken them hours to get through a local area flight. That should be the same red flag as someone saying someone who might have a broken femur saying, "I just got shot in the I just got shot in the thigh." It should be the same red flag because that's not normal for that guy. If that guy's telling you that something that is they can do in their sleep is now extremely challenging, that's a cognitive red flag in my opinion. Mm -hmm. And then when they're talking about their sleep issues and they're talking about um, their diet and you go, well, how often are you eating, man? And they're like, well, I don't even get hungry anymore, man. I eat like once or twice a day. And then you're like, well, what about sleep? Do you 
do you like alcohol? Do you drink off? The, oh, yeah, man, I drink, I drink. Okay, cool. So do you subconsciously find yourself with a glass of whiskey or a beer in your hand before going to bed? Or do you just like to like to drink? Do you like to drink? Some patients will be like, yeah, man, I just, I just buy a six-pack because I'm stressed out and I like to drink. It brings me down. All right, that's one thing. But time and time again, the guys will tell me, I don't know why. I can't describe it. I can't give you an answer. I just end up with alcohol in my hand, especially before bedtime. Well, of course you do, man. It's a downer. And when you get blown up a bunch of times, the natural chemical called GABA, which brings you down, is dumped. It's it's You get what's called a GABA deficiency from blast TBI, and that GABA deficiency really messes up sleep cycles. Well, the backup to GABA is ethanol. The byproduct of over-the-counter alcohol is ethanol, and your brain is smart. And once again, bring it back to slide one is we want to survive. I have to sleep to survive. If I can't get GABA to bring me down, what's going to bring me down? Oh, that six-pack will bring me down. Oh, that fifth of vodka or that whiskey will bring me down. Oh, those pills will bring me down. So you get guys who are eating six melatonin, drinking two glasses of whiskey before bed. They're not eating, and 95% of the serotonin that helps you go to bed is made in your gut, not in your brain. Um, so they're not eating, so they're not making the things. Then they play on their phone all day, and they don't turn the lights off to try and go to bed. And then their optic nerve doesn't develop. You know, it's not functioning properly. And you just, you just, you can hear the vicious cycle. If you just, you can just see where it goes from there. I think that um, that exact cycle sounds really familiar to a lot of people that are listening yep, right now. Hundred mm-hmm. percent. I mean, it sounds like a cycle that I've been in. Yeah. yeah. And people we have conversations with a lot. It. Yeah. You just described it. Yep. And it's, uh, I've talked to Paul about this before on the phone because um, I've been lucky enough to get to talk to him. It's like it, it, guys will quote each other and they'll never know each other even exist. I'll have a patient say word for word the same exact thing another patient will say. And they think that, and they think that they're the only ones experiencing that. And, um, you know, it's, it's always very interesting. They'll say things like, I'll be like, hey, man, two very important differences. Do you have trouble falling asleep or staying asleep? Uh, I can get to sleep just fine, but man, I can't. If a stick breaks outside my house, I will wake up. Well, that sounds like a growth hormone problem to me. Why? Because serotonin, melatonin, some other chemicals put you to bed. Growth hormone, very, very highly secreted when you're asleep, is what keeps you under. Well, if you're blown up a bunch or you have a neurosteroid deficiency, uh, typically you won't make enough growth hormone. Once you stop making enough growth hormone, there's no... Uh, intrinsic replacement, you have to take supplementation for it. You don't stay asleep. Um, so then we start testing guys for growth hormone deficiencies and things like that. And there's obviously behavioral modification here that uh, has to be talked about. Like I said, I made the joke about the cell phone thing. Yeah, you need to turn your electronics off. You need to have a bedtime routine. Uh, before lights were invented, cavemen waited for the fire to go out and they sat in a cave. And that stimulates your pineal gland to tell you it's time to go to bed and makes a bunch of chem makes a proper chemicals you need. So once again, I gave you data, I gave you a clinical recommendation, but now I need a behavior change from you. Okay, so if I'm gonna say that you're right, you're drinking alcohol because you have a deficiency, okay, we're gonna we're gonna work on cutting the alcohol and work on getting those chemicals back, but I need you two hours before bed like I need you to start scheduling your bedtime and start doing a routine because that'll only help benefit all the recovery that I'm talking to you about. So that's where I'm talking about that three-pronged approach uh, between provider and patient. Um, so those are just like little quick, little small examples of that fine-tuned ear, understanding the, the massive amount of data out there and turning it into something. And uh, just real quick while I'm on this tangent, 
is don't hate your clinical staff because it's not their fault. Um, a lot of them are not trained in this. If you go become a you go to become a doctor, you go to medical school for four years, and then you do a residency. And most, at least on the army side, you're either a family practice guy or an emergency medicine physician, typically for uh, battalion surgeons. You don't get taught this stuff, right? You're not a neuroendocrinologist. You're not a neurologist. You're not a neuropsychiatrist. You're, you know, you're not these jobs that you're not a PhD in neuroscience. You're not a PhD in PTSD, right? They're trying to do so much all the time. They have 1,200 patients to one doctor. They got to worry about all those physicals and halo and free fall plus command and staff and all these things. So I think that the medic who has maybe six patients on a given day is the prime audience to do something like these simple screeners uh, to collect this simple data and then interpret it and brief it to the physician staff and help be that force multiplier. Um, because you TDY the most, you travel the most with your team. When you're deployed, you're, you're on target with the team. You know firsthand what happened. You might hang out at barbecues with the guys. You know their families. And something I like to do is when I talk to TBI patients, I like to bring the family into it or I like to have separate conversations between the husband and the wife, for a quick example, and see if they match up. Mm -hmm. Because if they do, then we really know something's wrong, right? If I have a guy telling me that he has cold intolerance and then he can't sleep and he has migraines and he's vomiting, and then I call his wife and I'm like, hey, you know, um, I just saw... You know, make up a name. I just saw Steve the other day, and he's he said he's struggling uh, with some brain stuff. And then she straight up goes, "Yeah, he's been having these migraines. He's puking, and he won't eat. And I'm really concerned about him. And he's pushing me away. He doesn't want to hang out with the kids. He gets stressed out when we go to basketball practice. Oh, the mm. puzzle pieces are starting to fit. Oh, the story starts to, is aligning on all fronts. And then you know, his his fit, best friend at work is telling me that. Same thing. He used to be an animal in the gym, and now he can't get him to go to the gym. Now you're, in, you know, you're going detective mode, and that's that's detective brain. So um, those are just things that I think the medic has the best access to. Well, yeah, it sounds like too. While we're waiting for the technology and the healthcare system at large to catch up to speed, and it, it's going to take a long time. Obviously, there are things that can be done. Yep, like you said, like your your primary provider or your medic. Um, whoever it may be, like they can help you identify some of these things and you can develop these micro routines and health habits and that's going to alleviate some of these symptoms. I mean, maybe everybody in the world can't go ride in the barometric chamber. Maybe we all can't get special imagery, but if we're presenting in a certain way, there are these routines that we can develop. They're going to alleviate some of these symptoms and help us to regain some quality of life. If, if it's either required, taught, you know, and there's a discipline that's put into place. So what you just described, I mean, maybe you'll have some medics that'll listen to this and go, Hey, maybe I'll start doing that. But if it didn't come down as an edict and it wasn't directed that, Hey, this is something I want you to start tracking, you know, I mean, maybe you'd find a Ricky and you stumble across somebody that's just, uh, this is their, their geeky thing. And they like to, you know, read medical journals and try to, to figure out the best way to do it. Cause this is the direction they're going in their future. Um, or maybe you just got some, you know, a medic that he's treating your symptoms. Dude, you got a headache. Don't worry about it. Here, you know, take yeah. this. Go away. You'll be all right. You know, the headache's probably causing your dizziness. You know, you're stressed out. You just told me, you know, you're stressed out about X, Y, Z. All those things are related. You know, chill out. Take this. You'll be fine. You know. Yep. And, and I think 
even uh, those who are off active duty that are veterans um, are going to find that same type of attitude when they go to their, their local physician who's not used to um, treating veterans and, you know, and, and people that suffer what we're talking about here. So there has to be something that I believe goes out like a blast wave for PSI, whatever. Let's hit it hard. Yeah. It goes out there and says... Like if, like if there was like a, a meeting... A shockwave. That yeah. reached a bunch of people like, all oh, at once. Like, like maybe a, a podcast. podcast. Like yeah, a, you know. That has a good uh, audience. <laughs> you know that that says hey listen we need to take care of one another and to do that um these researchers also need this data to be able to um to to start evaluating it and if it's not readily available the more data so anybody that's not familiar with looking at and out and analyzing data and everything the more data points that are available the better the um, analysis and the outcomes are going to be because then they can narrow out um, things that are, are kind of abnormal or outliers and those types of things so they can get down to the root cause. And you can't do that unless you have enough data points. And right. so um, it just kind of really behooves everybody that, you know, we had Hunter Seven Foundation as an example, talked about burn pits and look for the signs. And, you know, you have to educate your physician about your past history and that you may have been exposed to these things. While at the same time frame, this organization is trying to tackle the medical community to let them know about, hey, you may have veterans that are coming to you. And there's a couple simple questions that you can ask a veteran when you find out that they are one through communication that, hey, have you have you experienced this? Were you in this type of situation where, you know, and and I think that's what we're trying to talk about here too. What are the ways in which we can start helping? And by the way, where would we send this data to, Ricky? I mean, is there if they, let's say they start collecting it at their individual units, is there a place that somebody can, you know, it can be collected at some point to compile it? I think maybe that's the gap that's out there. Are we there? Yet? You know? Yeah. I don't think we are. And maybe not. And that's that's a that's a gap and a missing point. And and of course you got to worry about the types of data that you're collecting so that you don't, yep. you know, can't identify the patient, but um, there's got to be a way in which, you know, it's being collected somewhere that physicians who are doing the analysis and writing the white papers, at least start getting to more of an agreement because the data uh, is available for them to um, analyze in such a way where, which they're at least reaching uh, a more closely aligned outcome. Right. Right. Than, than being total polar opposites because there's, you know, there's just not enough information available. Yeah. And there's guys trying to at least do things in that, in that interim, right? So PTSD is a, is a hot topic and those symptoms overlap with TB all the time. And, you know, you got guys like Dr. Sean Mulvaney and Dr. Jim Lynch that do that still at ganglion block and are having phenomenal success with it. Um, it's not a one treatment fix all. And uh, my Nonprofit is fortunate to, enough to host Dr. Lynch, and he even said that himself, and he performs it all the time. But it's that bridge that keeps someone going, and it's it's that bridge that keeps someone going. Hey, in you know two years, I'm going to need another one, but that's okay. For two years, I'm going to function really, really well. I'm going to be super healthy, and then when my SGB wears off, I can go get another one because it's available. So those two guys and their team, and I can't, I don't know who their team is, but they have a large team are fighting with the VA and they're fighting with Congress to get the VA to mandate treatments like SGB. Um, so there's a lot of efforts 
that's the best thing about this topic. If you're listening and you, you know you're, you're struggling with this yourself, there are a ton of efforts to try and make this happen. It's just in corridors that are not readily available yet, yeah. and there's not enough people bringing it down to the end user level because neuro stuff is complex. Um, but we need to make it plain language. Yeah. What's What's interesting about it is, despite its complexity, because it's so complex, there's so many different ways. There's so many different components to the treatment, it seems like. So yeah. just cleaning up your sleep hygiene, getting into a routine, watching your diet so your gut biome is correct. Like those Turning are, off your phone. Yeah, th- Those are things you can do on your own. They're going to give you a small incremental improvement. And you know, until we find a way to get this all collectively in one place right. or accessible, like y- you still have that. Like that's what was, because I knew that I had TBI for quite a while. I just didn't realize the extent of it. Um, severity probably to the level yeah yeah because no one's giving you a a a standard that says you're on a scale of one to ten you may have only thought you were a four but paul you're really showing indications much higher but like i can see it in my relationships i can see it in my professional yeah uh, dealings and in my personal life but then i i find that there's little things i can do in the meantime until i can get to these until you can get to like with the more advanced interventions. Ricky, I've got a feeling that we're going to get you back on again uh, <laughs> because I, I have a feeling that we really just kind of scratched the surface and more than likely we're going to get a lot of questions that, um, and I kind of hope they do come in that will allow us to really, you know, hone in and ask the right people, including yourself, the questions of, or the to get the answers from people like yourself um, and then some of these other um, doctors and physicians who are working in the same space, um, because I think there there has to be some kind of effort to go forward and action taken, not just by the individual, but by the science community that's been working, that it's not just sports related. It's not just the NFL. There's a huge veteran community here and a large base of individuals who probably even had the four PSI shockwave at a minimum. <laughs> yet may have been a hell of a lot closer um, to the point of impact, you know, and, and have, and and maybe even, um, you know, more individuals who did that over time for a longer period, you know, so you have those various different degrees as well. And I think that's the, that's one of the key things that we have to, you know, hopefully somebody it triggers it listening to this, it says, yeah, I, I think we can come up with a plan of attack to make this come together. Just wanted to say before we go, um, we didn't get a chance. What is the name of your foundation, Ricky? Oh yeah, thanks. So uh, I'm lucky enough to help run a nonprofit. It's the Special Operation Medic uh, Coalition. We're 501c3. I serve as the director of research and education. Uh, we help the special. We're narrow focus on special operations medics. We help them transition from battlefield provider to veteran professional through networking. Uh, we link them up directly with medical school, PA school, nursing school, admissions departments. Uh, I get guys published. I serve as a section editor for a journal, so I'll bring guys into that journal, help get all their experiences published in the medical journal so that they're more competitive applicants. Um, and we have a, a really great team. So uh, that's something I like to do in my free time. And then I do a journal club every week. So if you have articles you want sent out, I got, you know, like 900 people on the mailing list. And When you're not more... going to medical school, that's probably consumed. <laughs> I'm trying to get into medical school. I'm not there yet. Okay. <laughs> so. To get... So, like, um, how can people find the foundation? I mean, are you out on social media? What's the website? 
So it's uh, www.som-ce.org, uh, or we're on all the social media platforms. Um, uh, help out some other organizations. There's some really good ones out there besides just us. But uh, if you want to help support the special operations medic or the medic veteran, you know, we're more than happy to find a way for you to help and partner partner up with anybody. Ricky, I appreciate you coming on, man. Paul, I'm glad you, you got us all linked up and everything, and uh, we were able to do this. Like I said, I've got a feeling that this is a topic that's going to resonate with a lot of individuals. They're probably going to have some questions, and so we may try to come up with nothing else, some kind of Q&A thing yeah. that we can tee up in the future and get, um, even if it takes it through your network and others, that we can pull together maybe more of a panel, and uh, I think that would be a really cool episode as well. Yeah, that would be awesome. Thank you so much. It was an honor. Yeah, thank you, Ricky, for coming on and uh, sharing. And, and, of course, wish you much uh, success in what you're doing, and especially with the foundation. And, uh, hey, who knows? Maybe that will be the great data collection point. We'll send it to you, and you guys will end up uh, you know, using it how you guys see. But, once again, thanks so much, Ricky. Thanks, man. Appreciate it.